on how to use power. Um, and it's, it strikes me that um, I wonder how you, uh, I, I have this thought, I wonder what you think about this. You know, the, the traditional training in communication skills, you know, for instance, assertiveness training, uh, active listening training. I mean, I, I was doing and, and still do from time to time that training for decades, actually. Um, now I'm looking at that kind of training thinking that in actual fact it was training in power. It was just never spoken about directly. It's, but I, I wonder how much of that work was actually getting people to be able to use their power more effectively and they were skills and strategies to do so. But that training didn't really identify actually what we were really doing. It didn't give language to the fact that actually we were learning to use our power well. What do you think about that? I, I agree. I agree. I think that I also have done fabulous training on communication skills, on soft skills, emotional intelligence, and I've spent my whole life working deeply in fields of, mm. you know, helping people communicate better, learning how to be better communicators. Um, a lot of those trainings are power neutral. They assume that we're equal. They do help people use their power more, but they don't discuss power difference. So active listening or these different modalities, these different technologies, oftentimes don't mention power difference. Mediation, yeah. conflict resolution. We're not always mindful that where there's a power difference, are we really going to use a mediation technique? Is it really mediation when there's a power difference? Or is it just the problem of communication and listening when someone has power over somebody else. Yeah. The stakes are different for each player. The outcomes yes. are going to be different for each player. So that's, yeah, I, I really get that. I think this is the great challenge because the power differences were never really discussed properly. Um, and so, you know, I would be teaching people myself for years and helping them, for instance, actively listen and discovered that it was people found it very difficult to do it in some contexts because the power differentials were so great. You know, active listening to your boss when he or she is rather upset is a really tough thing to do. Um, it might be effective or it might not, but the truth is um, to simply teach someone how to do it without acknowledging that there are great difficulties because of the power differential is kind of maybe even a little bit unfair. Could be. It could be. It's yeah. also, these are also empowering tools just to say as well. Mm. Um, and just because you have higher rank, like a boss, mm. for example, doesn't mean that you feel equipped to do that. You could feel very disempowered having to active listen because it's not your comfort zone. You feel mm. awkward. You're not used yeah. to it. So even though you have higher positional power, you find yourself feeling like you're out of your depths in a low power moment. That's one of the, and that by the way, is one of the things that I love most about this work with power is that it comes away from only seeing positional power as the one kind of power. We've got to acknowledge all these other ways that we experience our power to really use it well. Yeah. Um, in fact, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Your book and, and indeed the tool you have introduced to us for organisations to use to work on power um, 
In both, I guess you make a particular point around helping leaders understand the dangers of having positional power but not feeling powerful. Um, And and could you say something about that? What are the problems of people who that are presented to to those of us who might have rank in certain contexts but who don't feel powerful? And, And what is the vulnerability to the leader of that? What's the problem created in that scenario? That's one of the problems that led me to really do this work. I was working with leaders and I felt that in the privileged role of coach is the privileged role of an advisor or coach, someone with that intimate relationship. I was stunned by how much people confessed their problems, feeling disempowered, not knowing what to do, feeling actually feeling at the mercy of their teams that they couldn't get the teams to do what they wanted to do that they actually felt they had less power than their teams over whom they had positional power. And it was that, that puzzled me. It was that enigma that really drove me. It drove me, it it drove me batty and it drove me to develop this. Um, So there's a great quote by the second president of the United States, John Adams. It, It is weakness rather than wickedness that lead men or people to use their power poorly. And that has really shown in all of my research to be true that feeling disempowered means that when you have power, the temptation to use it in a self-serving way is greater. And when I say self-serving, I simply mean things as simple as protecting or hiding yourself. If you feel weak or vulnerable and you feel that if you asked a question or didn't know the answer in a leadership role, you would be revealing weakness, then you could use your role to be silent, to put somebody else on the spot, to avoid having to answer a question, to not ask a question, to not ask for help, to pretend that you know what you're doing and no one's going to challenge you. So, or you could lash out if challenged because you're, you're defensive. You want to protect yourself. You use your power in a protective way rather than in an enabling way. So mm. in this way, power mm. is like a power in a way is like a um, like a drug or like a protective, like a magic potion that we can use to to get through and past obstacles, internal developmental obstacles that block us. So a yeah. teacher who doesn't like to admit they don't know everything can simply turn the question back on the student or humiliate the student or, or change the subject. Uh, there's just everybody listening now has a million examples coming to mind, no doubt. Yeah. So. It seems the way you describe that, it seems like though when we have this power, this, this hierarchical positional power in particular, we just, in those contexts, we have a lot more options around avoiding vulnerability. Exactly. And, Right. And and so, and what that means is that we use our power in a way that is ultimately self-serving. It's a protective strategy to avoid vulnerability. Um, Only at that moment, we might be protecting ourselves. But the way I hear you describing this is that what we end up doing is using our power poorly in relation to how we, um, you know, relating to others. Others then experience us as intimidating or preferential or or disengaging, um, even humiliating us. Um, all and all, we're doing all of that ultimately just to protect 
the vulnerability. And all of these strategies are available to us when we have power and less of them when we have, don't have power. Am I getting it? You're getting it completely. And I, I want to add something here is that I, I want to really emphasize it's not conscious that we're not, sometimes it is conscious. Sometimes right. it is conscious. Oftentimes, the people I work with are incredibly well-meaning, diligent, um, yeah. hardworking people. They would be horrified, and they are horrified when they discover that people experience them as intimidating or not approachable or, or superior. So it's not done off, it's not often done with consciousness. It's, it, it's unconscious. We don't realize we're doing it. The second thing I want to say is that it's not just positional power. It's any kind of power. I want to give an example here that I used to see a lot because I spent a lot of time in group settings, meetings, groups, running groups, being in groups. And I used to observe that, what it's like. I know, I know very acutely what it feels like to walk into a room as an outsider and as a newcomer versus walking into a room as an insider and you know, part mm. of the old guard. Yeah. And I was always amazed and surprised at people who had high informal power. They were really deeply embedded in that group. They were long-term members. They were veterans. They had seniority. They were well-liked. They were popular. How frequently those people never went over to a newcomer, never introduced themselves, never said hi, never used their power to make it easier for somebody new coming into the room. Mm. And it, mm. I, it used to trouble me. Mm. Mm. I used to trouble me. Um, and I think that's a form of using your power to just feel comfortable in a group setting. People feel, you know, in a group, it's awkward. Maybe you feel nervous about what's going to happen in the group or it's a meeting or you don't know people yourself. So you have your little group of insiders. You have your clique and mm. you don't leave your clique. You, you use that clique or that group or that sense of belonging to feel comfortable in that group setting, but you don't see it as a rank that you could bestow, that you could share with somebody else who's more of a newcomer than you are. That's just a little example. That's wonderful. That's just so good. You know, as you say that, I'm realizing that sometimes bosses, um, I was working with a group a couple of weeks ago and I've, these bosses confessed something really interesting to me about their feelings of inadequacy in the role and how they tended to find themselves aggregating with parts of their team that they felt more comfortable with. And, um, and we were talking about the difficulty now of that because they had this lens of power upon them, which meant that what they were doing naturally was, was aggregating with those that they felt more comfortable with, but actually it, it was creating wider problems within the team. And, um, exactly. It looks like bias or it looks like preferentialism. Preferentialism, or, yeah, yeah. Or discrimination even, right? I mean, it looks like some people are getting less... Yeah. opportunities and all it comes from is feeling awkward or yeah but just feeling a little bit uncomfortable and shy and even and um and this leads me really to the next bit i wanted to ask you about because i i want to i i need to say in the context of this interview that i myself am accredited in utilizing the diamond power index and i've um applied this in various organizational contexts but uh, many of the people listening here don't know about the tool, and some might, but I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about it because not just 
uh, actually because it can teach us something very interesting about power because it's the first time that I think a tool has just specifically described what good use of power might look like and what um, poor use of power might look like. But it does more than that. Um, it also looks at self-assessment and individuals get to assess their own sense of personal power. And I might ask you about that first and then we can get to, um, you know, the other, the, the other, the pictures of what good and power use, good and, good and poor use of power looks like. But what you've decided to include in this tool, a self-assessment aspect, and that's around personal power. And why did you do that? And what does it give you or what does it give the person who's getting the profile, I suppose? Well, just what we were talking about, the reason I did that was precisely what we're talking about is that feeling a lack of power can lead to a poor use of power, that the, the yeah. person's own sense of power is so critical to how we use power. It, it, it's, a very, it's a very basic psychological premise, right? Mm. It's not just mm. about power. It's about anything. From a, from a psychological point of view, how we feel about ourselves is translated into our behavior with others in the world. That's like a very simple mm. truth in, mm. in human development. How we feel about ourselves translates into how we act with others. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. when I began to think about power and I could see in the research that how people felt was being directly translated into their behavior with others through a power role, it became very evident that simply getting feedback about how they're using their power would be Interesting, but limited. First of all, it doesn't give us the leverage for change and growth, that the actual levers for change are with the person's own inner sense of power. As coaches, that's what we're working with. We're not just working with a printout of behaviors that we just teach people to perform. Mm. If that were the case, and if it were that easy, we would be geniuses and we'd also be unemployed because um it'd be very easy to master a list yeah. of behaviors yeah yeah <laughs> but we know as as coaches as human growth as as people as human development professionals we know that change is a complex process mm. and self-identity feelings about ourselves are, are so key to to how we behave with others so that was that was a really big reason and this sense of feeling disempowered is, is so important. So then once somebody sees uh, how they're rating themselves on their own sense of self-efficacy and their ability to impact and influence the world around them and seeing how that manifests in terms of how they use their power with others, it puts people more squarely in the driver's seat of the whole feedback process too. They're mm. more empowered. They're more engaged. It's really about how they're doing internally, not just about what people say about them. Mm. We know that feedback processes is very hard for people. So putting them in the center of the process is always a good thing, no matter what kind of 360 or feedback process you're using. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and so perhaps it might be useful now if I ask you, I, I'm just to pick out a couple of eyes, like for instance, in the, you have seven scales in this profile and people who do the profile get feedback across those seven scales and those scales are the scales around which others comment on the use of power. 
So this has been derived from a whole lot of research you've done um, over quite some time and um, you've derived these scales because they correlate to really good use of power or poor use of power depending upon which end of the scale. So one of them, for instance, is intimidating versus approachable. And I wanted to ask you about that one because perhaps it might be one which most people could relate to in the, in the first instance more easily. Um, good use of power helps people, even who are really senior, to be somehow approachable. Exactly. And, exactly. You know, and, and, and poor use of power ends up making us a little bit more intimidating. Now, can you help us just unpack what is it, what's the lesson from that scale that we as leaders or anybody who's offering leadership might, might take? What is this scale telling us that we think could be, we, well, that, that we need scale, to hear? Mm. That yeah. scale is now, there's a very big concept out there now that people are talking about, which is called psychological safety. That is the scale that talks about psychological safety. You're either intimidating, difficult to approach, you shut people down or shut people out. They're not going to tell you their problems. They're not going to ask questions or ask for help, or you're approachable. You're easy to approach. And the lesson for leaders is this. You need to know what's going on in your organization. You cannot afford to be intimidating because you cannot afford to have people not want to tell you when things are going wrong. You cannot afford to have people not ask questions because you're hard to talk to or you're scary in some way. Mm. And so the more approachable you are, it's not just about being nice and friendly. It's about having your finger on the pulse of the organization, knowing where problems are going to occur before they're before you can't solve them before they blow up out of control. Um, you, yeah, that sounds, that's so, so good. Um, in fact, you've reminded me, you know, Amy Edmondson, the lady who first coined, coined this term. term. Mm. She's very, isn't she? I don't know whether you've read this. I'm I actually, I know you, I'm sure you have. In fact, you may not have seen this interview, but it's a transcript of an interview where she says, I really want you to know that cultures which are psychological safety are safe are not cozy sort of um correct i know that feel yeah. good it's not about uh touchy feely feel good it's yeah. robust it's you robust, robust. It, and so yeah. and what it is is people more likely to take significant risks yes. telling bosses things that they might not it's it's That's a right. culture where people are willing to give things a go and say things and do things that because they feel sufficiently safe. This is not a cozy curl up in front of the fire. Everyone no, loves, loves me. And, it's not kumbaya. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's what you talk about in your work, Paul. It's where people, teams are able to have really hard conversations to put things on the table, take mm. that risk. They won't be mocked. They won't yeah. be criticized. But they're not, but, but they're able, but we're talking about really tough conversations here. There's nothing cozy about it. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, it doesn't feel cozy. Um, it feels risky, but it's a risk one is willing to take in with leaders who are more approachable. That's right. And, yeah. That's right. So I want to ask you, I know our time is getting close to the end. Um, it's gone fast. So I, 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 frankly, I have about seven other questions that I was kind of thinking I might ask you and maybe we might do that another time. Um, but I wanted to ask you about maybe you could pick up one of the other scales that might give us an, in, just another angle on the use of power. 
Um, I don't know which one you think could be helpful to pull up. Do you have an idea? Because I could ask you about one, but you might have a thought. I want to talk about one that is very different. So we have a lot that have to do with how you personally come across intimidating, approachable, engaging, disempowering. Where you know it has a lot to do with your your ability to work with others, your interactional mm. style, things like that. I want to talk about something which we call indulgent judicious. It's been on my mind lately. Mm. Mm. We see it a lot. I think one of the it's a scale that measures how much a leader puts the interest of others ahead of their own self-interest. And it's a very tricky thing because in a leadership role, you are a symbol. You become, you're no longer you, but you are a symbol of the organization and your actions in a, in a high power role. So you, you can do things which benefit you personally. And it gets very hard to make a distinction between is this action or direction best for the organization or best for the team or is it just expedient for me mm. and there's mm. obvious and egregious examples of indulgent behavior flying the corporate jet for your own child's birthday party and things yeah, like that yeah. but there's but there's things that people miss all the time for example i see this on a leadership team where one of the vice presidents or one of the directors is more concerned with their budget or their team or their resources and sort of getting into silos with other, right? Mm. Sort of that silo mentality or bunker mentality. That's indulgent behavior because you're thinking about your team over and above the needs of the organization. Right. Yeah. Um, I've seen really <clears throat> lovely, well-meaning, you know, friendly leaders who are extremely disorganized be rated high indulgent because their disorganization and their sort of difficulty scheduling, getting back to people, being responsive, puts an enormous cost on other people. And mm. it looks to them like entitled indulgent behavior. So this is something that on the surface looks obvious, but has layers that I think are really hard for us to understand. Our self-interest mm. is a very tricky thing. Yeah, and um, one of the things I really like about what you described is is this lens of power on indulgence. That in actual fact, um, you know, we might think of indulgent behaviour as something that a teenager might do, but uh, you know, but in actual fact, indulgent behaviour can be something someone much older, or maybe who someone who has a lot of power in some contexts um, can do, and that indulging is a use of power. Well, think about, I mean, one of the most common things is the boss is late to the meeting that he or she sets. Everybody else is there and the boss walks in later. Yeah. That is, and people endure that and you know what they're feeling and thinking and eye rolling or. Yeah. But that's an indulgent behavior. I can be late. It's my meeting or Mm. I didn't reply to that email or I didn't send the agenda out because I was busy or right? Or asking, yeah. getting other people to do things for you because you can. So there's, yeah, that's, I that's, see it. Yeah. that's fascinating. You know, that reminds me of the vexed issue of being in meetings and looking at your own laptop or phone. And um, that's indulgent behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and I was with a group just a few weeks ago discussing this and what they hadn't quite realized is how power laden that particular behavior is because 
when we discuss the likelihood of sitting with people who are more senior with you and then you flipping open your laptop to have a look at things, they all agreed that actually it's far less likely I'm going to do that um, when I'm sitting with people who are one level, two level, three levels above. But it's much more likely for bosses to do it with people who are less senior than them. This is actually an exercise in power. It's an exercise in power. That's exactly right. It's not just busyness. People will say, oh, it's busyness. It's not busyness. It's power because you're just as busy as a lower ranking person, but there's no way you're going to open your laptop That's in a right. one-to-one with your boss or your boss's boss. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And look down. I could just say that. Just yeah, yeah, minute. sorry. Just a minute, just, boss. Just a minute. <laughs> sorry. I'm just going to so, shoot off this email. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, sorry. What was that? I didn't quite get that. You know, um, just repeat that for me and I'll, you know, that's the sort of thing. We don't do that up. We do it down. And, never, um, never. Yeah. So I know our time is up and um, I just want to thank you. I've been interviewing Dr. Julie Diamond, who is now becoming and and really, uh, Julie teaches all over the world on power. And so we're really lucky to have, I feel very personally privileged to be able to have this time to interview you and um, to talk about your book and about the tool and to help at this day and age to help us understand how power actually interplays and overlays many of the things that we do that we've just never seen it. It's so prevalent, but it's been invisible. And uh, now we can talk about it because it's being made visible. And this is really largely due to your work. So thank you for that. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. I've loved it. I I hope we get another chance. Thanks so much. Yeah, me too.